is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Bob Archer in today for Charles Feldman. So much hate in California right now. The number of hate crimes in the state went up in 2021 for the third year in a row. Now, the most startling number is the rise of attacks on Asian Americans, a nearly 178 percent jump from 2020 to 21. We're going to go in-depth today into why more Asian Americans are the targets of violent bigotry and prejudice. The descendants of the family that once owned Bruce's Beach in Manhattan Beach now officially getting the land back. But theirs is not the only story of stolen land. Other black families here in Southern California trying to get land back that was once theirs. We're going to look into whether it is just inevitable also that we're all getting COVID at some point. Millions of us here in California will be getting stimulus money to deal with inflation. Is that going to backfire? We'll talk about that. The president pledging more U.S. troops in Europe as NATO looks to expand. Solving a murder now seems to be harder for police. And young sharks are hanging out around the beaches of Southern California. We will talk about what they are doing. We're going to start with hate crimes here in California. Russell Jung is a professor in San Francisco State's Asian American Studies Department, co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate. Professor, thank you so much for being here. Uh, So we've seen this happening for a while now, so this is not really surprising, is it? Yeah, these numbers of hate crimes aren't surprising. We know that the broader context Um, There's been a surge of racism facing all communities of color, but particularly Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Our own data at Stop API Hate shows a sustained rate of racism where one out of four, um, one out of five Asian Americans have experienced a hate incident in the last year. Now, uh, when did this uh, sudden increase begin, and and what's the factor driving it? Does your research show you that? Was was it due to uh, anti-Asian rhetoric coming out from uh, some fringe corners because of COVID, or uh, now that COVID is fading, is there something else behind this? Yeah, well, it started because of COVID-19, and Asians were scapegoated and blamed for that disease. Um, President Trump's insistence on using the term Chinese virus really racialized the disease and stigmatize the people. But what's happened since then is that um, an increasing number of Americans actually continue to blame Asians for COVID-19, despite Americans not getting vaccinated, despite Americans not wanting to wear masks. They blamed Asians for the spread of COVID-19, and an increasing number do. So I think that larger segment of blaming Asians um, comes from their own sort of social media um, outlets and um, then contributes to the continued racism against Asians. Is that surprising at all or not to you? Because usually, historically, when we do see a spike against a group in particular, it does go down the year after or the year after that. Now we're in year two of this, and it hasn't gone down. It's going up. Right. And so, um, <clears throat> again, because we're continually blamed for the disease, but also um, two other sources would be U.S.-China antagonisms. When China gets bashed, then oftentimes Asians in the U.S. get bashed. And secondly, I think, um, you know, the overall racial climate in the United States, the increased polarization contributes to the increase in hate crimes and hate incidents. Yeah, you mentioned polarization. And, you know, in an age where people who are prone to blame Asian people for COVID-19 and want to take out their anger and rage and frustration on them, they live in their own bubble where the only information they get is that Asians are to blame. So how how can 
we reach through that and uh, begin to to lessen this threat? Yeah, you know, that's um, a major issue in the United States, the fact that we're so polarized, especially in terms of the news and information we get. So what we're we're encouraging policies so that there's more truth in and um, understanding how people get their information and how um, the algorithms by which people get information gets set. Um, Another approach would be um, the teaching of ethnic studies, having our public education system really deal with race and racism in truthful ways. And on the sort of interpersonal level, it's it's up to us to really connect with each other to break down segregation and to learn to share each other's stories. Are police departments getting better at investigating hate incidents and are people getting better at reporting them? And even with both of those things, if both of those are a yes, is this still an undercount? Yes, both the police are being more sensitive to reporting. I know the Asian American community is reporting um, more as they recognize um, the severity of the issue, but it's clearly an undercount. Um, We at Stop API Hate receive a lot more reports than government authorities do. And it could be because we're more accessible by language, we're more trusted. Um, And oftentimes people feel like reporting to us enables the community to have a voice, whereas reporting to government, they may not feel um, as much efficacy in doing so. Uh, Do you think any of this is institutionalized in uh, some way? The underreporting? The underreporting and also the fact that uh, uh, do you feel that the system is not treating Asian people as fairly when it comes to reporting hate crimes and doing something about it? Yeah, the underreporting of um, hate crimes and hate incidents clearly is an institutionalized issue. Um, Institutionally, government doesn't provide language access. So if you don't speak English, it's really difficult to report. Oftentimes, um, police aren't sensitive, don't ask questions about racial motivations. And so that's another institutionalized practice that um, leads to underreporting. And then finally, the institutions don't provide much services. It takes a long time um, It's to get feedback. It, it's really difficult to prosecute hate crimes. So those institutional policies and practices make it difficult for Asians to report. Russell Jung, professor, San Francisco State, and co-founder Stop AAPI Hate. Right now, after nearly a century, Bruce's Beach in Manhattan Beach is finally being given back to its rightful owners, descendants of the Bruce family. They were the black family which owned the land before they were driven out of the area. Now, the story has gotten a lot of attention, but it's not the only one. Other black families and indigenous groups in Southern California went through the same thing. Kevon Ward's founder of Justice for Bruce's Beach. He's helping five other black families and with stories similar to the Bruce's. So how many, uh, thank you for joining us, how many uh, different stories are we talking about? How widespread is is this uh, returning land back to the people who originally owned it? First, I just want to say, yeah, I'm, I'm the founder of Justice for Bruce's Beach and Where Is My Land? Where Is My Land is a national organization focused on helping Black families from across the country get their land back. Um, after my work for the Bruce's, uh, a bunch of families started to reach out to me, specifically almost 400. And so I decided, decided to start the national organization. But we're working with five other families in the state of California, and we're hoping to get land given back to them and or restitution, financial restitution for land taken from them. Can you give us a quick summation of the of the five families that you actually are working with right now and what yeah. happened there? 
Uh, yes. Uh, one, there's one family, the Burgess case, Burgess brothers, they've been fighting for their ancestor, Rufus Burgess, who was brought to California as a slave and um, worked the gold mines. Um, his master eventually let him buy his freedom and he built community up in Coloma, California with a bunch of other black pioneer families. Um, and they mined gold. They had orchards, fruit orchard trees, and they actually had a business where they were delivering uh, fruits to different counties in California. Um, hundreds of acres of their land was taken um, but specifically what the family has the deed for is the church up there, the black church up there that's not being utilized. And um, then we have the section 14 survivors out of Palm Springs, and we're hoping that they have some success this year. They've been organizing because that group, those groups of people were living on indigenous land. Um, they were leasing land from uh, in the natives uh, in the 1960s and were ultimately bulldozed and burnt off of their land. Uh, they didn't own the land, but they leased it. They had 95-year leases, and they bought homes and built homes on the land because they were allowed to. And there was no other space in you know, Palm Springs for Black people to buy. So the Natives were very, very close, and they lived with the African-Americans back in those days, only to have the land and the homes bulldozed and burned down. Um, and we're working with other families that we can't really go too deep into just yet, but there, one is in Santa Monica, um, and there's a, a couple of other places in California. Yeah, you talk about uh, you know Native Americans because I was going to bring that up. How far back is all this? Uh, could all this go? Because you've got Native Americans who are going to remind everyone what's been happening for the last two to three hundred years uh, as they right. were here on the continent before you know right. Europeans showed up. So does it go back to that point? And 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 how does how would all this get worked out eventually if it kept going in that direction? Um, absolutely, you know, and rightfully so. The natives have a right to stake their claim on this land because this is their land. It was their land, and Black people were forced to be on this land. And once we built this land, we decided to purchase if we could, and we did. And so right now, Where's My Land is focusing on centering Black people because no one else is doing it as it relates to land being stolen. And that's indicative of the 400 families who have been fighting for decades to get land back that, and, and who have proof that the land was theirs, went to the court and had no success, even within the courts, even though they had the proof. So right now we're focusing on Black land. We stand in solidarity with uh, the Natives. We've had Natives help us with our advocacy and 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 that's it and I, so I can't talk about going way back I'm talking about what do we do to repair so that the future is better for black people in this country Kavon Wards founder of Justice for Bruce's Speech and now where is my land thank you Coming up police around the country are having a uh, tougher and tougher time solving murders and young sharks are swimming around the beaches of southern California going to tell you exactly what they're doing swimming around the beaches yeah Alameda County was the only county in the Bay Area to bring back an indoor mask mandate earlier this month as the COVID cases were on the rise. It was lifted on Saturday. Cases uh, went down. But the data shows not a lot of evidence, no evidence. The mandate made much of a difference compared to the other nearby counties. So are we back to this inevitability question? Are we all going to get this thing at some point? Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, director of the Center on the Demography and Economics of Health and Aging at Stanford Medical School. Doctor, uh, thanks for being with us. So this is up uh, towards your neck of the woods. What do you make of this? I mean, if you look at uh, mask mandates around the country, and in fact, around the world, 
it's hard to say that you, you can see much of an impact um, on the, the change in the number of cases. Uh, it's, and, you know, you, you might like, wonder why. The problem is like most people that wear masks are not wearing masks like a, like a surgeon would wear masks. Like you're, you're fit tested. It's, it's a very tight seal. It, it all, frankly, has to be uncomfortable. And then you have to change it very frequently. A mask mandate doesn't work that way. I mean, you're asking uh, large populations to, to wear masks in ways that that's just not feasible. Um, and it just doesn't work. It doesn't actually stop disease from spreading. And so Contra, Contra Costa County, which is right next door to Alameda County, you look at the number of cases they had, it looks almost identical in terms of the, the spread of the disease compared to Alameda County, which had the mask mandate. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting because I know a lot of people, uh, some of them very close to me, one so close that uh, he practically wears my clothes, who uh, got through most of this pandemic without coming down with COVID and thinking, you know, I think we're going to get through this thing and never get it. And then, boom, you've got a case of COVID. And then you recalled you were around someone who got really close to you who was not wearing a mask uh, at all. And then it was that easy. So so it uh, raises this question of, like, are we all just going to get it and just have to deal with it? And fortunately, if we're all boosted and vaxxed, uh, we won't get serious effects of it. But this is going to spread to just about everybody at some point, right? Yeah. I mean, already by, I think, February this, this past year, the CDC released a study of antibodies in the population. And I think it was like 75 percent of American children and 58 percent of adults had antibodies that indicated that they'd had the disease at one point or another. Um, you know, and that's, those are probably underestimates because the antibodies do fade over time. So it's, it's very likely that we're going to get it. It's just, this is a very highly infectious disease. And we, frankly, we don't have a technology that can stop its transmission. Um, you know, the mass mandates, as we've talked about, have been failed. Uh, the, uh, the, the vaccine, while it protects you against getting severe disease, um, it doesn't stop you from getting the disease. And I personally, I had the vaccine in April of last year, 2021, and got the disease in August of 2021. I mean, it's just, it's just and lots of people have told that story now, I think, with, with Omicron. Um, but it shouldn't be so scary. The vaccines do work to protect against severe disease, and we have these better treatments now. It's a very different thing than it was in March of 2020. It also doesn't mean just uh, give up and throw all caution to the wind, though, right? Like, keep your mask on if you're going indoors and crowded. And if you are at risk, especially, I mean, if the mandates don't work, because look, the mandates don't come with enforcement. This we know. Uh, the masks work, but the mandates don't. I mean, I think the masks, it, it would, it, it's, I, I mean, I'm a little careful about, like, saying the masks work for, with any certainty. Um, the problem is, like, you, right, you the have variables to you listed. It, yeah. Get a good yeah. one and keep it on as much as you can. Yeah, yeah it would be, it was, you have to, you have to, like, really work. You have to really learn how to put them on. I mean, that's why certain like medical personnel go through training for for this. Like they get fit tested every year. Um, it's 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 complicated. So I, I'm a little reluctant to to say just you know for sure it works because I don't think that's true. It's a more complicated question. So, um, but I will say that that uh, I, I, I'd counsel the public don't be so unless you're unless you're vulnerable unless you have unless you're much older. Uh, or you haven't been vaccinated uh, at all, and you've got haven't got the disease before, um, or you're, 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 you have some sort of uh, condition that really, really puts you at high risk, and that's a relatively small portion of the population now. Um, I, I, I mean, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't argue. I'd argue that you should, we should like not, be, we should be telling people, uh, you know, be, be careful. Yes, if if uh, you know if you if you're really nervous, yes, but uh, for the most part. Getting back to your own life is actually not the not the worst thing in the world. It's actually quite a good thing. At this point, um, 
it's not possible to stop you from getting COVID. What you can do is protect yourself by getting vaccinated so that you don't get the severe disease. Make sure that you uh, reduce the contact with people who are really high risk, yes, but uh, you know, we could push for better ventilation in, high, in public spaces, things like that. Those kind of interventions would work. But the mass, I think, just have failed as an intervention. They've created huge divisions, and I just don't. I'm, I, at this point, I'm not. I'm, I'm not willing to say that uh, they're, they're an intervention that, that are that are appropriate to, to recommend to the population at large. Uh, hospitals, yes. Population at large, no. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, Center for the Demography and Economics of Health and Aging, Stanford Med. So it sounds like your best bet, uh, the safest course of action still to make sure you're vaccinated and get all the boosters that you're eligible to get. And that's the way to, if you get it, you won't get it seriously. Boost regularly. Yeah, boost regularly. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Rob Archer, in for Charles Feldman. The state lawmakers have that plan. They say it's inflation relief, sending out the relief checks to millions of people. Many will get more than $1,000. Others will get a few hundred. But will inflation relief actually make inflation worse? Sounds counterintuitive, but there is an argument to be made. Chris Thornburg is a founding partner of L.A.-based Beacon Economics. Chris, thank you for joining us. So, uh... Isn't the problem with inflation is that we've got demand. So if you give people inflation relief checks and money to spend, won't that just make it worse? Well, exactly right. Look, over the last couple of years, the government has responded to the pandemic with um, absolutely too much stimulus. You're talking $7 trillion in fiscal stimulus, $5 trillion in quantitative easing. This has caused a surge in asset prices, which is causing a surge in consumer demand. Inflation is the natural result when too many dollars are are chasing too few goods. So prices are going up largely because there's so much consumer demand. So now what Gavin Newsom wants to do is give us more money, which is going to create more demand, which in theory should make prices go up even faster. Now, mind you, the amount of money we're talking about here, $1,000 per family, is not going to, shall we say, move the collective needle in this uh, in this crazy world, again, the federal government was using trillions of dollars in stimulus, and what the state is doing is is relatively small compared to that. But still, it's it's it goes back to the fundamental idea that our government policymakers don't really seem to understand what's going on in our economy today. Was this warned at all? Was this brought up through the process of uh, when they when they debated for months about how to get us some kind of money? And we've seen it with the the, the larger government stimulus over the pandemic, and that is obviously there's a couple different camps, but one of them has been the whole time some relief, but not all of it, because that really led us to where we are now. And so California rolls out with this. Was there anybody waving their arms saying, excuse me, guys, I don't know if that's going to be totally a good thing? (laughs) Well, I have, but right from the get go. I mean, listen, let's let's talk about the federal direct stimulus, uh, the unemployment or the subsidy tracks they sent out to American households. You know, for every dollar of lost income suffered by Americans because of the pandemic, the federal government has given us back $2.50. So we're well beyond, quote unquote, relief. And we've entered the realm of just pure populist politics. And, you know, this is a well-known story. You've seen this over and over again when the government, like, excessively stimulates the economy for some political end. The end, end result is inflation and rising interest rates. This is what's going on around us today. But the inflation and rising interest rates, which are are caused by the excessive stimulus, are being blamed for hurting people. And, of course, this ridiculous idea that we're going to have a recession the next year. 
It's a complete mischaracterization of what's happened. Yeah, and in, in some ways, inflation is like a self-sustaining nuclear reaction. Like, the more you try to do something with it, the worse that it's going to get. But I think you touched on something that might be the actual problem here, is that yeah. the American political system is one predicated on the idea that a politician is always campaigning for the next term or the next office. And when you campaign, most people in the country who don't really understand all the ins and outs of economics, because it is complicated, understand only this, hey, prices are high, give me more money. And the politician that says, we'll give you more money, tends to get the votes, and the politicians know this. So we have this problem where maybe the politicians understand that uh, this is not going to solve inflation, but they also know that it's more important to get votes than it is to solve the problem in many cases. So we give people money. Is that part of it? And if that is, if I'm right about that, how in the world do we stop this? How, how do we educate people to know that, well, if you want inflation to ease, we need to kind of bite the bullet here for a little bit and get through it? Right. Well, that's exactly right. And listen, we've seen this play out in the 70s. It was exactly the same sort of situation, excessive amount of stimulus causing inflation. Um, it took years to work through the political wrangling until, of course, Jimmy Carter finally did the right thing and hired a guy named Paul Volcker, remember him, and he fought the brave fight. Now, you know, that eventually set off the recessions of the early 80s, which could end up being the ultimate consequence of these paths we're pursuing. And what we really need more than anything else right now is a tough chairman of the Fed. You know, over 70 years ago, we passed a law in the United States that was supposed to functionally uh, remove the Federal Reserve from political, shall we say, interaction or, or intervention. They made it an independent bureau that was not beholding from a policy perspective to the president or Congress. By the way, president and Congress have hated that ever since. They've been attacking the Federal Reserve. And now the Federal Reserve Board is completely politicized. The people who are running the Federal Reserve are not smart bankers and monetary economists. They are people who have a very distinct political view, one, candidly, that doesn't match the data. And almost assuredly, what you're going to be seeing is a very similar 70s sort of path where inflation continues to rise and interest rates continue to rise. And this economy slowly but surely grinds to a kind of a stagflation equilibrium, not a recession. That's completely wrong. This is an economy that's going to be growing very slowly. and It's going to be very tough for us to invest, save, to to live our lives until someone comes in and gives us the tough medicine. But wow, what political party wants to take that grenade right now? Chris Thornburg, founding partner, L.A.-based Beacon Economics. People might think that solving a murder is uh, quick and easy, if, especially if you watch TV shows and uh, movies. But real life, it's a little different. CBS investigation finds the number of murders that are now solved each year has dropped to its lowest point in more than 50 years, basically 50-50, even with technology advancements. Thomas Hargrove runs the Murder Accountability Project, which tracks unsolved murders across the country. Thomas, thanks for being here. So we're basically down to, like, coin flip status. Yeah, thank you for having me. Unfortunately, that is what the math says, that uh, we are at an all-time low, at least in the history of reporting crime data in the Uniform Crime Report. We're at an all-time low for the rate at which we clear a homicide. That means at least one person is arrested, formally charged, and handed over to a court of law for trial. Uh, we used to, back in the uh, good old days of the 1960s, I don't know if they were good, but back in those days, we were clearing up to 90% of our murders. Now, we're uh, in the most recent year, which was 2020, we cleared 54%. 
All right, I'm going to blame somebody for this, and I know exactly who to blame. I blame TV and movies, because I think uh, a, a detective who's honest will tell you that in many cases, they solve a murder not because they were smart to figure it out, but because the murderer was not smart and dumb and made stupid mistakes, and the detectives capitalized on that mistake and found out who was guilty. But nowadays, you've got all these TV shows and uh, and uh, movies where really smart writers have figured out really smart ways to murder people, and I think murderers are paying attention. Could that be part of it, that, that, that people who commit crimes are getting a little bit smarter in how to get away with it? I don't know about that. I, I personally have an entirely different villain um, that what we're dealing with is a lack of resources that local governments increasingly are starved. They don't have uh, a steady tax base relative to the demand for municipal services. And as a result, there are an ever increasingly high demand for a very limited number of dollars. Unfortunately, uh, relative to the size of the necessary budget, police departments nationwide have been slowly starved. Today, there are insufficient uh, boots on the ground, if we were to use a military term. We don't have enough detectives. We don't have enough forensic technicians. We don't have enough laboratory capacity. We don't have enough of everything. Uh, Training. We just are ill-equipped to deal with what has been a cascade of new murders uh, because of uh, COVID-19 and because of the Floyd um, uh, murder uh, in 2020, Floyd uh, George murder, we have had a, um, an increase in murder, a, a dramatic 30% jump in 2020 in the number of homicides. And um, we, have the, we do not, not have the necessary staff to be able to handle that increase. And so the clearance rate has taken a serious, serious hit and probably will again when the 2021 data come out. Right. So if crime's going up, then that math doesn't help either because you've got more murders to solve. And if you don't have the resources, then how are you going to catch up with them all? Exactly right. There's also, moves, fact- as, there's also moves in some of these cities, as, as you well know, to further cut the police. Yeah, uh, obviously, we're not fans of the defund police uh, movement. Police departments and police uh, need to properly follow the rules. Uh, They should not have any more uh, George Floyd type events that was counterproductive to public safety. Um, But also, we simply don't have the capacity to handle the crimes that we're, we're seeing. Uh, in tomorrow's uh, series on CBS, they're going to take a hard look at uh, at Jackson, Mississippi, where I believe they're going to show that uh, there are inadequate detectives to handle what has been a jump in murder. Uh, in fact, in 2020, uh, Jackson had uh, uh, 200, uh, 110 homicides, which is an all-time high. That's not a very big city. That's an all-time high for Jackson, Mississippi. If that rate were to continue... Your lifetime odds of being murdered in Jackson, Mississippi, are something like one in 14. I mean, that's a lottery nobody wants to win. And we're seeing the same kind of problem in Jackson. They don't have necessary capacity to be able to arrest killers. And when you allow killers to walk the street, uh, surprisingly, nothing good happens. Uh, there uh, is there a possibility that there are other factors here and two things I wanted to point at, uh, you know, you mentioned that the uh, the uh, rate of solving murders 
in the 60s was a lot higher than it is now. But uh, a skeptic might point out that one of the factors there is, you know, a lot of people got convicted uh, uh, unfairly. They weren't guilty. And we would find out years later when they get released from uh, prison when new DNA evidence comes out. So that's one possible factor. The other possible factor that affects us today is the amount of, I hate to be guns into this, but the amount of guns on the street keeps going up and up and up. And doesn't that also reflect in a higher murder rate? No question that mistakes have been made in the courts and that innocent uh, people have been sent to prison. Uh, Innocent people, I'm afraid, have been executed. Um, Mistakes like that are not acceptable ever. And uh, new technology has helped with that. When there is DNA available, quite often it has caused exoneration of innocent people. uh, And that's a good thing. Um, I don't know that there was so much of that in the 60s that it was causing a 90% clearance rate. We don't really understand, since it was so long ago, we don't really understand the mechanics of what was happening then. But that was the reported rate at which we cleared murders back then. Um, We did have more police relative to population relative to crime back then. Um, So that probably was a factor as well. Um, but I, I really can't speak to, uh, can't speak to um, what exactly was happening when we were clearing 90% of our murders. Thomas Argrove runs the Murder Accountability Project. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Rob Archer. In today for Charles Feldman. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has sparked worries of further aggression in Eastern Europe. The concerns have been addressed at this week's NATO summit in Madrid, where President Biden says the U.S. will significantly increase its military presence in Europe for the long term and will set up its first permanent presence in Poland. NATO also formally invited Sweden and Finland to join James Goldgeier is an international relations professor at American University. He is the former director for Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council staff and also author of a book, Not Whether But When, The U.S. Decision to Enlarge NATO. Thank you for joining us. So is this kind of a return to the battle days of the Cold War? Well, there's certainly bad days. I don't know if they're the old days, but they're definitely bad days. I mean, Vladimir Putin uh, has made clear in his statements about Ukraine not being a real country, about his desire to be the new Peter the Great and gather lands that he thinks belongs to Russia uh, into Russian territory. And so NATO really has no choice but to respond to the possibility that he will commit further aggression. Which is also a backfire for Putin, right? Because if he was worried, apparently, about NATO getting larger, now it's larger. We've got two extra countries and we've got more of us there, more of a U.S. presence. I know it is remarkable. You know, if he had just played nice since 20 after 2014, instead of invading Ukraine then and invading it again in February of this year, uh, we'd be talking today about how the United States had lost interest in NATO. NATO had drifted, didn't really have a purpose. He he's given it a purpose. And as you say, he's he's making it larger. Finland and Sweden had no interest previously in joining NATO. And uh, of course, now they're very eager to join in. And the U.S. was going to shift its attention to China. And now it's back, uh, you know, in in a big way in Europe. Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting because, you know, for so long we heard about Russia's vaunted military and how when they began the invasion of Ukraine, uh, we were we were guesstimating that on the outside, Ukraine's going to last a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks, maybe a month, but no more. They're going to be overrun. Uh, obviously, that 
did not happen. Where does uh, Putin stand militarily now as NATO begins to expand, and will he react in desperation? Well, I don't think I don't think there's really that much he can do against the NATO countries themselves, um, and even the two new ones coming in, Finland and Sweden. I mean, he's his military is depleted after uh, what he's put it through in, in this war against Ukraine. Uh, it is important for NATO to make clear that they are going to defend all of NATO territory if he should uh, decide that he wants to uh, test that. But uh, I think the bigger worry right now is that we must continue to provide support for Ukraine to help it defend itself. Russia is still in a very strong position in eastern Ukraine, and that country is not free from uh, that aggression and continued Russian intimidation. Well, President Zelensky uh, beamed in on the uh, on on Skype to the conference, and uh, to paraphrase, he said, "Is it not enough that we're defending all of Europe basically to let us into this thing?" But I mean, he understands the politics of this and why they can't in Article Five. But he also understands that you know saying that to all of them gets him more of what he's asking for, right? More assistance, and uh, that the West does not lose interest. Right. Yes, I think the West is very focused uh, on this threat from Russia, uh, the NATO strategic concept, and particularly the NATO, uh, the heads of state and government declaration coming out of this summit, a very strong statement about Russia. You know, there's no hint, as there was previously, of of any prospect of partnership with Russia. That's over. Uh, This is all about NATO uh, supporting Ukraine. Uh, to the full extent possible. And isn't it true that uh, Russia has drastically reduced its standing in the world with uh, what appears to be uh, deliberate targeting of civilian errors? We we saw the video of the rocket being launched into a shopping mall with no military value that uh, that anybody knew about. Uh, and, and so that's reduced its standing in the world. Is there any way for Russia to come back from this with, without having to overthrow and get rid of Putin? Well, you know, I mean, the the problem is you still have a lot of people in the global south who think everything is the fault of the West, the United States, Europe, um, and that Russia was provoked. uh, And even though Russia, with this blockade of Ukraine, is creating a food security crisis uh, throughout much of the global south, um, even there, a a lot of people uh, are buying into the Russian argument that it's it's the West's fault. There's always so much suspicion in the global south of the West that, you know, Russia has gotten more of a pass than it should. This is a imperialist, colonialist war of the highest magnitude. They've they've undermined the UN principle that big countries shouldn't just march their forces across borders uh, and take territory from weaker neighbors. Uh, and I wish there was a, a bigger response from the international community against Russia. Uh, and, and you know, hopefully that will come if Russia continues to act in this barbaric manner. James Goldgeier, international relations professor at American University, author of Not Weather But When, the U.S. Decision to Enlarge NATO. All right. If you're a little older, you might associate uh, July 4th and Beaches to one of the uh, scariest movies of all time. Jaws 
With the holiday fast approaching, the weather looking really good. The uh, beaches here in Southern California are probably going to be packed. And not just with people. Researchers at uh, Long Beach State and the University of Minnesota find juvenile white sharks like to hang around the beaches of Southern California, too. With us is study lead author James Anderson, researcher at Long Beach State's Shark Lab. James, thanks for being here. So is this an, oh, no, there are young sharks hanging out at the beaches, or is this a, oh, cool, there's young sharks hanging out at the beaches? That's a really good question. Um, and honestly, it really depends on your perspective on things. These sharks have been at our beaches for a number of years. Um, we are seeing what we think to be a, a population increase. So we're starting to see numbers of, of white sharks come back, both as juveniles and as adults, as they progress through. Um, but really in Southern California, you know, we have very, very few human shark interactions on a yearly basis, even on a decadal basis. Um, So most of these sharks really are paying very, very little attention to anybody at the beach. And they're kind of there most of the time. And most people rarely even see them, let uh, let alone know that they're there. And is there any significance to the fact that these are young sharks as a, where where are the old sharks? uh, Why are they not gathering too? That's a good question. So, Traditionally, we have regarded Southern California to be a nursery area for juvenile white sharks. So this is animals that are newly born through to probably somewhere between seven and 10 years old. Um, So size-wise, we're looking at animals that are roughly around four and a half feet to somewhere between 10 and 11 feet when they kind of start to transition their diet and they move off to other things. And so the larger sharks we tend to associate with areas such as the central and northern coast of California and also the offshore islands. So places like Catalina, um, the Channel Islands up in the north of California, we're talking about the Farallones and Nuevo, and even down as far south as uh, Guadalupe in Mexico and some of the other islands that are dotted, dotted down the, the coastline along that way. So really those animals are there because those are primary centers for the, the general prey species, marine mammals. So you wouldn't talking about seals and sea lions, uh, to some extent otters. But really that is not what is comprised of the diet for the juveniles. Juveniles like to eat uh, other fish species, other small shark species, and stingrays. And as anybody who goes to the beach in Southern California can tell you, there are a lot of stingrays at our beaches. And so really, there's a lot of food for these little sharks. When I say little, that's a, that's a relative term. But yeah, there's a lot of food <laughs> for these guys to eat at our beaches. So if they're getting enough food, and that would mean they're not interested in us so much, that would be a good thing? Uh, that would be a good thing, and that's certainly the hope. Um, so, you know, these are wild animals. Wild animals are unpredictable, so you can never say never. Um, the usual kind of regard that we have when an animal or when a, when a shark, a white shark, a juvenile white shark, and a human do come together and there is a bite of any kind is that that is not what we would classify as being a predation attempt. It's probably not what we think of when, when you, you know, like you, when you allude to Jaws and the idea of the monster shark, you know, swimming around and chomping everybody. It's not trying around. to eat me. No, exactly. So sharks, when you, if you see something and you're interested in it, you want to think about it as being food, you're going to pick it up, you're going to feel it, you're going to look at it, and you're going to smell it. For a shark, all of that sensory gear is up in its mouth, right? So it has a very strong sense of smell. It has a very strong sense of taste and pressure and feel is also important. And all of that is right up there at the business end of the shark. So if it wants to check something out, it's going to take an exploratory bite to kind of see what it is. Now, for you and me, if should, should we ever be unlucky enough for that to happen, that's going to be a problem because they have very sharp teeth. And it only takes a small nick of an artery for you to be in a lot of trouble. 
But fortunately for us, that doesn't happen very often. These animals are actually surprisingly timid. They don't like people as a general rule. They don't like boats. Um, they're not really interested in us. They tend to avoid us or just pay us no attention at all. And we have hours and hours of drone tracking footage that we've studied that kind of documents this. These animals mind their own business to the greatest extent possible. And they rarely, rarely pay any attention to human water users at our Southern California beaches. They are teenagers, right? They're yeah. just not paying attention to anything around no, them. No, they don't care. <laughs> They're scrolling That's on their it. phones. So they won't even look up. All right. Now, I, th- I think people might want to see Mike Simpson in a bathing suit. Oh, they will not this want to see... Turn. They will not want to see me, so I'm not likely to go to the beach anytime soon. Mike might. Uh, so if Mike gets in the water and it's good news that the sharks are not paying as much attention to us, uh, what can we do to make sure that stays in effect, that we don't go out of our way to get their attention and make them want to eat us? So there, there really isn't anything you can do to make them want to eat you. Um, you know, if there are people who go to beaches where they know sharks are and either deliberately target them with fishing gear or will even do stuff like chum the water to try to attract their attention. And that, that's, things like that are going to attract their attention. Now, you put baited hooks out there with stuff that they're going to want to eat or you put the scent of food in the water, it is going to change their behavior set. It is going to attract their attention. And unfortunately, there are people who do that at our beaches. And even though they know that there are people in the water at the same time as the sharks are in the water, and that ultimately could result in a problem. Um, so really, you know, the, the best advice I can give is to act sensibly. You know, don't do things that are going to put you or other people in unnecessary danger or change situations to make them dangerous when they don't need to be. For the majority of people who are having fun at the beach, whether they be surfing or bodyboarding, swimming, paddling, stand-up paddle boarding, whatever, even if you see a shark, I mean, if you see a shark, it's pretty cool, actually. Um, but even if you do see a shark, it's really not a big concern. Our advice is always, if you see a shark, keep your eyes on it. Watch it. Make sure that it's you know, not posing you any threat. And if you are concerned, if you are worried, just leave the water. Go tell a lifeguard if you want to. It's really not a big problem. It's not a big situation. These animals are there all the time. They're there throughout the summer. Um, and then, like I said, the statistics show that really the instances of people actually having any kind of physical interaction with these animals is very, very, very low. You really have far more worries about getting to the beach on the coral <laughs> Actually the get again, yeah. And yeah. I, uh, I won't dress up like a seal. No, so. no don't do All that. Right. Yeah. James Anderson, researcher at Long Beach State's Shark Lab. That's in-depth for today. Back tomorrow.